0: This is a a military, what China has built is a military industrial complex
1: with a vengeance. We're in times of war, and war is a time when nations reflect. We think about the implications of the choices we make, the opportunity cost for which could mean lives saved or lost at the front line. And this is especially true when talking about disruptive military technologies. Joining us today to talk about the tech war between the United States and China is Dr. Arthur Herbin, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute and Director of the Quantum Alliance Initiative. We'll also talk about this his book, Freedoms Forge, how American business produced victory in World War II and how it applies to what some would call Cold War 2.0, fast forward 80 years to today. Dr. Arthur Herman, wonderful to have you on the show today.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: So in January, you wrote an op-ed in which you described how a technological disruption in 2022 would be in quantum security applied to data and communications. Two months later, we witnessed modern warfare in real time and tangible tactical value of cybersecurity. So in this field, how are we measuring up against China?
0: Well, the In the area of quantum technology, we have to understand that it really comes in two branches right now. Two branches in terms of the science and also uh, the development of the technology. On the one hand is the development of quantum computing, which is the use of quantum physics in order to uh, create computers which are going to be uh, much faster and be able to solve a whole range of problems that even the fastest supercomputers today can't. Can't address. And on the other side is what we call quantum communications, and that is of using the same physical principles um, of quantum mechanics in order to establish communication links between first, at first point to point, between sender and receiver, but ultimately as a development of creating really an entire network of quantum enabled communications, which will be essentially hack-proof, and which will also be virtually instantaneous, uh, namely at the, at, at the speed of light, communication links, uh, and eventually a quantum internet. Now, from the point of view of quantum computing, which is probably what most of your listeners have uh, and viewers have heard about, uh, in quantum computing, United States still enjoys a lead I would even say a comfortable lead because we've got major companies like IBM and Microsoft and Intel and Google uh, pursuing that avenue uh, in the development of quantum technology. And although the Chinese are sprinting fast to catch up, uh, they just don't have right now the kind of spread of private initiative and know-how that the United States uh, is able to enjoy in that area. In the area of quantum communications, however, I have to say United States lags behind. And the Chinese have understood the strategic as well as the technological significance of having instantaneous hack-proof networks Uh, as a way in which to protect data and networks. And it was back in 2016, Gary, that they launched a quantum satellite, namely a satellite that was able to communicate from space to ground using these unhackable communication links. And the last three years, they've continued to develop and work on that technology, Uh, whereas the United States is still kind of trying to get a foothold in the area of how to create that sort of space to ground, uh, unhackable networks uh, that are gonna be really important, not just for the evolution of quantum technology, but also for the way in which we develop space and the way in which uh, space becomes the means by which global ca- connectivity will take shape and also how our defense posture will be defined, namely what's the, who dominates space is really going to dominate the future defense posture of the world. So what's happening in Ukraine, although it's not about quantum technology per se, yeah. of course, but it should be a wake-up call to us that all of the issues about how do we defend America, what's our comp- what is what's the consequences of falling behind in our competition? In high technology, with a country like China, which has a very aggressive stance and 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 a and a comprehensive plan to win that competition, what are going to be the consequences of this? These are not just theoretical problems anymore. These are going to become real problems, and and we need to really think about this in a serious way.
1: Really futuristic time here, but I want to go back in time uh, a little bit. Sure. So you accounted in your book, Freedom's Forge, on what you call the most powerful and flexible system of wartime production ever ever devised that grew out of the underlying productivity of the American economy. So this arsenal of democracy, as you described, was a large part of what propelled America to victory in the Second World War. And fast forward to today where warfare certainly looks very different and uses much different technologies. How effective is our system in advancing America's military and technological capabilities?
0: Well, no, that's an interesting question because of course the arsenal of democracy um, that won World War II and also then enabled uh, the free world to overcome communism during the Cold War uh, was all built around technologies that right now would seem to be what we would call legacy systems. You know, it's about building more tanks and more airplanes uh, and more uh, uh, machine guns and uh, all of these things, although still important to our military services, uh, it's not where the decisive edge in terms of strategic or military competition lies. Um, and yet, at the same time, what we have come to understand is, is what made The system that I describe in the book, Freedom's Forge, uh, the mass production, this flexible mass production system that allowed commercial companies and and, and entire industries to shift over and to produce the instruments of victory for allowed the United States and the Allies to win that war. What we have to understand is that those principles apply whether you're talking about trucks and tanks on the one hand, or if you're talking about hypersonic missiles. Um, and uh, an unmanned uh, aircraft, uh, what we call autonomous systems, on the other. It's all the same thing. And it applies to 5G and advanced wireless technology. It applies to satellite uh, construction and satellite launch. The principles are the same. And so what we have to understand is, is that if we are going to build what I'm calling, and what I've been describing in my article is as an, arc, an arsenal of democracies, for the 21st century, namely one which is, involves uh, a cooperation and collaboration between the United States and its democratic allies, like Japan, um, like the Great Britain and Australia and India and the other and Israel uh, and the other democratic powers uh, in the world, which are key players in high-tech industry and in the development of advanced technologies. If we're going to do that, then the lessons we've learned from Freedom's Forge about how to how to tap into the most the, what what the private sector does best, which is innovation and productivity, how to tap into what the private sector does best, and integrate it with what the public sector and government does best, and that is to think strategically, to think about how do we protect national interest, how do we advance our strategic and military posture in which everybody is working together towards single, simple goals. If we can bring those two things together, as we did in World War II, then I think the lead that that China has enjoyed in some of these technologies and in thinking about these technologies from a strategic standpoint will begin to fade. And the arsenal of democracies for the 21st century, I think, can stand as a landmark event both in the history of the United States, but also in the history of freedom and its endless struggle against, against tyranny and totalitarianism as well.
1: I think uh, what a lot of people don't realize is, as you talked about in an op-ed about four years ago, the technologies we're, we're talking about are, are civilian. They're, they're the phones we use, the computers, uh, the softwares. So how does this play into the tech war we're having now?
0: Well, it plays into it in a couple of ways. One is that a lot of the focus, of course, on the companies in the private sector who have been developing these technologies. You think about companies like Apple, for example. Uh, It's a great example. Google is another, um, who have enormous expertise and enormous motivational value in pursuing these technologies because it's how they make a profit. It's what reinforces the bottom line is is that their primary focus has been precisely on that. How do we make money with these technologies? How do we advance the human community in a broader sense? And in the process, of course, they don't think about these things in terms of, of, of what this impact is going to be on the national interest in a more narrow sense in the way in which, for example, China thinks about these matters. So what we've seen is... Uh, The unfortunate result of that mentality has been that many of these of our best and brightest technology companies have been very willing to work with China uh, on these technologies, both in terms of uh, the production values. I mean, Apple phones are iPhones are made, you know, overwhelmingly in China and factories and, and facilities there. Uh, we've seen them, but also work with them on technology and scientific and research and development projects in ways that don't take into account the degree to which what China wants to achieve with these technologies and what the United States and these companies themselves want to achieve are two completely different and even contradictory things. So part of what will make for a free, for a, a, a arsenal of democracies for the twenty-first century, Gary, is going to be getting those companies, American private companies, uh, and our best and brightest to think not just about how do we reinforce America's strength and keep America strong and secure in the twenty-first century, which is very much part of the Freedom's Forge model, but also how, what is our responsibility in terms of not sharing information. Uh, working with China on uh, future technologies because it's a way in which this is a a primary way in which we're going to hurt American national interests and ultimately hurt ourselves as part of a larger capitalist system. That's part of the change in consciousness that's got to take place here. And this is what we're really talking about, that we have to think about advanced technologies not just as ways in which we can you know, have more access to data and have bigger networks and on our phones, you know, download movies faster, right? The promise of 5G, for example. But understand that these are strategic commodities as well that have a big impact on our national security and how we protect our democracy, how we protect freedom around the world. That's a change of consciousness that needs to affect everybody from 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 the White House and even those who advise us on those science and technologies, all the way down to the companies that are involved and and the users themselves, to understand what what this competition with China is really all about when it comes to advanced
1: technologies. Uh, there's just task force that's within uh, within Congress. I think that that kind of proposed strategies, for example, this whole government approach uh, to facilitate the consciousness that you were talking about. Um, in your opinion, what are some of the ways that we can, we can do this? Uh, what are some approaches we can take? Is it just, just, is it just through legislation or are there some other, uh, we, can, we can facilitate this change of consciousness It's so important?
0: Congress has an important role to play in this. So does the executive ba- branch. Uh, when I was uh, with the National uh, Security Council, working as a senior advisor to the president's national security advisor, these are among the issues that we very much talked about. Uh, and tried to address, particularly in areas such as 5G technology, wireless technology, which really will become uh, the means by which huge amounts of data will be moved and accessed uh, in the coming decades. And who controls and develops those networks for moving and accessing that data is going to be hugely important if it's the United States and companies linked to the democratic free world, or whether it's China with a company such as Huawei, which has had, I think, a rather sinister record. And I've written about this extensively, a sinister record when it comes to its links to Chinese military and intelligence services. So Uh, Congress has an important role to play. Executive branch has an important role to play. But I think there's also an important role to play for think tanks like Hudson and the work that I do, and that is to raise the consciousness on the part of private sector, the part of citizens, that we're all in this together, and that our competition with China is one that if we lose this high-tech race in areas like 5G, like quantum, like artificial intelligence, we have even talked about that, is another area where China has been leaping ahead and moving ahead and thinking strategically about this technology and the way in which the U.S. has had a more diffuse effort, Uh, even though it's been extremely successful and competent from a technical standpoint. We need to think about AI from a strategic point of view as well, that if we lose those races, we lose it all. Um, the future of our freedom, the future of freedom around the world is at stake in this. And so get, keeping a keen focus on how the U.S. can bring, as you were saying, an all-of-government effort, but also an all-of-industry effort. And that's really what the Freedom Forge model is about, is how, again, you harness the energies, the entrepreneurial spirit, the innovation of the private sector so it's directed towards clear and realistic national strategic goals. That's what. That's that's where we need to be. And this is the work that we're trying to accomplish here at Hudson.
1: Right. And, and one thing, I guess, that kind of stands in the way of that is they're very, you know, as you mentioned, the, these corporations, a lot of them have vested interests in, in communist China. And therefore, it would be hard for, um, you know, America to convince them of of, of doing what we're, saying that they should do Uh, so are there any way to overcome this or you know are there any way that they can they can somehow decouple from from China's market
0: the key word there you just use Gary and you're absolutely right is the word decouple how do we distance ourselves from dependence upon supply chains manufacturing facilities and investment uh, in in American industry and companies how do we how do we divest ourselves from those kinds of connections in order to both build our modern high-tech arsenal so that it's safe and secure uh, and reliable in our hands, but also then too, how do we make sure that that we don't have uh, leave hostages to fortune? in terms of what China can do with regard to supply chains. And in areas like, for example, advanced batteries, the degree to which the key ingredients for advanced batteries, for electric vehicles, for military hardware, the degree to which supply chains are dominated by China is a very alarming one. We've had an entire report that we've done here at Hudson on this very subject. So this is is an issue which... Is, needs to be addressed. But how do we do it? That's your question, Gary. Well, let me suggest a couple of ways. One is Congress has to weigh in and explain to American companies that decoupling from China is the future. And we need to establish timelines by which that is possible. We need to explain that both to private companies, companies like Apple, for example, but also to Wall Street. One of the Key vulnerabilities that's that we're becoming more and more aware of is the degree to which Wall Street firms and American banks and investment companies continue to see China as this great market, you know, and this great investment opportunity, not realizing that they're really uh they're they're really hurting American national interests by doing so. So it's going to have to be one in which a decoupling comes on the one hand, in terms of American manufacturing companies and high tech companies but also in terms of american investment in china as well that's number 1 but there's also an important op- option here and that is is that decoupling and bringing resources back to the united states doesn't just mean every here in the 50 states or 48 states we can do it with our democratic allies we can plan this out and work it out with countries like japan like south korea like taiwan like the European Union with our NATO allies. This is why I'm using the term arsenal of democracies. Because unlike the arsenal of democracy in World War II, where we had the industrial base and manufacturing base and engineering know-how to produce all of the weapons that were needed to win that conflict on two fronts, you know, in Europe and also in Asia, right? that and and ultimately to create the greatest weapon the world has ever seen, namely the the, the the atomic bomb, that doesn't exist now. We don't have that kind of monopoly anymore, and so what that means is is that the in terms of supply chains, in terms of engineering know how, in terms of uh, cooperation in advanced research and development, turn to our democratic allies. They have so much to offer. They're so willing to be part of this if we explain to them what the agenda is and that this is not just about building you know america up as as you know a a sole superpower or anything like that it's about protecting freedom and protecting their own national interests but those two things in working in tandem getting american companies and american investors out of china as much as possible and, and, and as feasible a timeline as possible and number two turning to our democratic allies as a way to expand and develop our manufacturing and industrial base in all of these areas, we have a real shot at at overcoming all the obstacles that, that confront us now in dealing not just with China, but dealing with Russia and with dealing with their allies like Iran and North Korea. Huge vistas open up, Gary. That's what we're trying to do, to come to realize that That right now we have enormous opportunities to save freedom, to save our own country, but also to develop those advanced technologies so that they benefit everybody from artificial intelligence, to quantum, to space, to 5G, so that they benefit all of humanity and not become tools by which one country, namely China, is able to reinforce
1: its dreams of global hegemony.
0: That's what we're trying to avoid.
1: Zooming in on one of the things you mentioned, which is um, China's side, I think yeah. the centerpiece yeah. of China's strategy is to compete with the United States in advanced military technology. Is to facilitate what they call a military-civil fusion, um, which right. the idea of which goes back to the Mao Zedong's era, but this has intensified under Xi Jinping.
0: Tell it us more about,
1: that. yeah, and tell, tell us more, much more about how the system works and how effective it is. Well, it's a matter of law. It's not just an informal arrangement
0: between the Chinese communist government and private companies, whether they're state-owned or whether they're private companies. The basic the basic principle is, to, to, to simplify and bring it down to its essence, the basic principle is, is that whatever you do, Whatever you make, whatever you develop as a commercial company becomes the property of the Chinese military and intelligence services. So if they see a use for anything that you're working on, whether it's 5G technology or whether it's quantum communications or quantum computing, uh, if it's in areas of artificial intelligence or very important area, Gary, to think about, and that is in the area of bioscience and biotech, if they see something there that they think can advance their military or intelligence posture v- versus the United States and the West, they have act- direct access to it. Um, this is a, a military, what China has built is a military industrial complex with a vengeance. You have no choice. Our military industrial complex, the one that grew out of the roots of World War II, as I explain in Freedom's Forge. That was ultimately a voluntary system. You could become part of it. You could get government contracts, work with Defa- Department of Defense, or you might not. It's up to you. Um, there's no choice with the Chinese military industrial complex. What you do as a commercial company uh, becomes automatically uh, the property uh, and the technology that the military and intelligence services can use as they, not you, see fit. This is why, Gary, it's so important to have U.S. companies decoupling from partnership with Chinese companies because they will not hesitate. They have no choice. They will not hesitate to appropriate whatever technology or shared knowledge or, or work that you're doing with, an, with a Chinese company. They will not hesitate to use that to build China's global hegemony ambitions uh, because that's the law. And that's how things work in china uh, this is a huge I, I i would say it's a huge advantage not in the long term but it's a lo- it's a huge advantage in the in the short and medium term in being able to advance china's goals in the
1: high-tech race one thing i've always wondered about the authoritarian system in that yeah. it's it's a system that's bureaucratic in nature and in one way or another, I, you know, I think this kind of system tends to stifle innovation with inherent, you inherent know, structural problems, um, the top-down design, the pervasive corruption across the communist regime's institutions. Right. So what are your, your thoughts on this? Well, I think
0: that's a pretty good characterization of the way in which um, authoritarian systems do tend to limit uh, the possibilities for innovation, entrepreneurship, and productivity. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and it's and it's an historical record, too. We can see this, for example, with the Axis during World War II. It's a really bright scientist, particularly the Germans. And they came up with some fantastic ideas for weaponry, whether we're talking about ballistic missiles or we're talking about advances in, in jet propulsion, for example. Um, but the fact is, is that the government, by maintaining the kind of strict top-down rules and regulations, uh, restricted the ways in which those kinds of innovations could be brought to market and therefore be brought into being in terms of full-blown weapon systems. And I'll come back to that point in a second. But from the point of view of we're talking about China right now, not about Nazi Germany, but the parallels are very interesting and important in that regard. Um, however, what China has managed to do is to overcome the shortcomings and weaknesses of such a system. Um, and they've done that through intellectual property theft. That that, the, that innovation by others becomes automatically the property of China and of Chinese companies and the Chinese government as well. And when we think about China as the world's worst uh, offender in cyber theft, this is precisely what it's about. It's cyber theft with a purpose, a strategic intent to steal the technologies and the information and data that they need to reinforce their high tech industries and their military and intelligence services, but also China's broader and more strategic plans here. And this goes for everything, from AI and five G all the way to to digital digital technology as a whole. You know, there, China has a plan called Digital China, and that plan has been in implementation for for a number of years now, going back at least at least a decade and a half. Digital China, and that's not just about making China, you know, a, a a major competitor in the world of digital technology is to make sure that China dominates it. It's not about competition, it's about domination, control. Uh, and so much of what has happened in the world of cyber theft with China and the stealing of art of intellectual property has to do with reinforcing that goal. But there's one other aspect of this that we mustn't forget: that innovation, which is an important part of the private sector's virtues. You know, people are thinking, are free to think, to come up with new ideas, to think unconventionally, to think outside the box. It's part of the nature of what innovation is in the private sector, and the commercial space is one that encourages that kind of thing. But the other key ingredient that is important is productivity, Mm -hmm. that it's one thing to have really great ideas, but it's another thing to translate those into actual products or into actual processes that make things that bring technology from out of the research and development phase into the deployment phase. And that was the key for the United States in World War II, Gary. It wasn't just that the Freedom's Forge model, the arsenal of democracy, it wasn't just that it tapped into the innovation of the private sector, it tapped into this productivity. And if we are going to build a future arsenal of democracies that that prevails over China's approach to these issues, it has to be one that combines innovation, the fruits of freedom, and also productivity, the fruits of, I'm going to say, discipline, the market discipline of, of strategic planning, of thinking ahead to how do we get this fantastic idea which we've just explored you know, on the whiteboard <laughs> in the conference room, right? All sitting and talking together. That's innovation. How do we get that to the assembly line? How do we get that to the manufacturing facilities? So something really tangible and worthwhile comes out of it. And that's where we also need to think about. Think about where an arsenal of democracies is headed and why collaboration with allies is going to be so important in developing that other component for what it is that makes for, makes for winning the high-tech
1: revolution. So, uh, yeah, given our current sort of military defense ecosystem, how can the United States shift its focus to priorities like disruptive and advanced military technologies that wouldn't necessarily offer a short-term return to investors?
0: Well, that is going to be part of the challenge. And I think what we have to realize is, is that a lot of these developments that we're talking about uh, and advancements are ones in which are not necessarily going to advance the bottom line, uh, at least in the short term, certainly. But they are ones in which will advance our national security, and making sure that companies understand how important that is. And I think they are. I think in the Im- I think I have to say, Gary, that one of the one of the impacts of the whole COVID crisis is coming to realize the peril both of doing business in China. Uh, that there are enormous risks and vulnerability, but also to understand the nature of the opponent we face. Uh, an opponent who, I think the evidence is increasingly overwhelming, developed this um, virus in a lab and almost certainly developed as part of a larger biowarfare strategy in terms of developing an arsenal for this kind of this kind of uh, uh, use, of biotechnology as, uh, as a weaponized weaponized technology. And I think when we come to realize that and, and who we're really facing and what the consequences are of losing this, I think you'll be able to sort of see companies and, and executives and engineers coming to understand how important it is to reinforce our strategic strengths, reinforce our national defense and security. Um, as opposed to thinking only in terms of, gee, how do we expand our markets? Particularly, how do we expand our market share in China? Uh, it's a it's an illusion, and I think we're beginning to realize that. That's on the one side, but there also has to be a change in the way in which we approach these things in government, and that is government needs to take responsibility here, for explaining to companies and incentivizing them for to decouple from China, to reshore here in America, and to turn their innovative and productivity smarts loose on the technologies that will help America and its allies achieve their strategic goal, uh, which is to make this the American, the, the next American century, not the Chinese century, as some critics have, sort of, have suggested or said here. What we're talking about ultimately, Gary, is a change in consciousness, a change of consciousness of how we think about advanced technologies, that these aren't just exotic toys or developments and so on, which will add to a more leisurely lifestyle, that this is the essence of what it is there, where freedom is going to be confronting tyranny and totalitarianism in the 21st century. And if we think about it in that way, that we're thinking about these as vital strategic commodities, which of course have enormous commercial benefits, and the more further we advance, we saw this in World War II, the more we advance the technologies as a tool for national defense and security, the more commercial benefits, the more innovation it will trigger in the broader private sector. This is what happened with World War II technologies. This is what happened with the space race and putting a man on the moon, the rollout of all kinds of technologies that came, including computers, including the internet as a result of that. We're going to see an explosion, an explosion of private sector initiatives and innovations that come when we make this adjustment in our thinking about high tech and the role of government and all of this. But government has to embrace that responsibility. And I'm afraid to a degree, they have not. All these companies, Gary, Apple, Google, all the others, they wouldn't be doing business in China. If the government, if Washington had said to them, don't do it, you're going to hurt us in the long term. You're going to hurt our national interests. They did because no one said, don't do it. And so what we need to do is to change that change that dialogue into one in which Washington stands up for our national security interests, stands up for our national interests, both for the growth of our economy and also for strengthening our national defense. And then I think Companies and executives will come around and realize that they have a hugely important role to play in the development of the future arsenal of democracies and in advancing high tech so it benefits
1: everyone. Well, we'll be watching this closely. With that said, Dr. Archer, Arthur Herman, thanks so much for coming on the show today.
0: It's been it's been great. I've enjoyed the conversation very much.